Did I do that? Oh, okay. I wanted to add my thank you as well, and we enjoy the freedoms of this nation because of the sacrifice of many, both men and women, who have, uh, in many cases, made the final full gift of devotion. So, uh, God bless you. Thank you. Open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8. We're going to have to dive right in here this morning. We've got a ton of material, and the clock is ticking, and the roast is cooking. I hope you like your beef well done. So, It'll dawn on you later when I what I'm trying to tell you. So yeah, Matthew eight. I want to talk to you this morning about demons. I want to speak to you this morning about demons, and this is not the sort of topic that you would go looking for. You don't sit in your study and think, okay, now what do I want to talk about next week? I, I got it, demons. Let's just do that. You know, but that's a, that's a result of a, of an expository preaching ministry that takes you verse by verse through the various uh, books of the scriptures. It brings you to topics that you ordinarily wouldn't search out, and it forces you to, to come to them and deal with them. And, and uh, there's a tremendous amount of richness and truth in this uh, section that we have before us this morning. You know, there's a lot of misinformation that's rolling around in the evangelical world with regard to the, to the topic of demons. I can remember a little over... 25 years ago, an author by the name of Frank Peretti uh, kind of splashed onto the scene and uh, wrote a, a, a series of fictional novels. They were, uh, these two big ones were This Present Darkness and uh, the follow-up sequel, Piercing the Darkness. And they, the themes of those novels had to do with the unseen uh, spiritual realm and the conflict between angels and demons. And those books were uh, wildly popular. They've sold millions of copies. And uh, they are an entertaining read, but they are not entirely factual. There's, um, there's an erroneous idea that, that lies through those books about territorial demons. And uh, Peretti is responsible for sort of popularizing that unbiblical notion. Matthew chapters 8 and 9, as we uh, delve in here, were written by Matthew for a specific purpose, and the purpose is to authenticate Jesus as Messiah. The overall theme, of course, of Matthew's gospel is, Israel, behold your king. He comes to you. And in order to be that great messianic king, he needs to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about that coming king. And so Matthew pulls together here in chapters 8 and 9 a a series of miracles performed by Jesus, nine of them actually in these two chapters, and he brings them together for that particular purpose to demonstrate the authority and the power of Jesus Christ as that great messianic king. And he puts these miracle accounts together in three triplets, so three miracles, and then he puts in a teaching about discipleship, another three miracles, another teaching, and another three miracles. And that's how he structures chapters 8 and 9. The first triplet of miracles dealt with Jesus' power to heal the leper, as you'll remember, his power to, to heal the centurion's servant, and his power to heal 
Peter's mother-in-law. We're arriving here, we're at the second triplet. We looked last week at Jesus' power over nature. We're going to look this morning at his power over demons, and then the third of the triplet is his power over sin. That's just sort of the basic outline of how this fits together. Now, in Matthew's gospel, we're, when we arrive here at, the, at this, this account of Jesus' power over the demonic realm, we arrive at the second major confrontation that Matthew narrates for us between Jesus and Satan. The first confrontation was in chapter 4, and it was Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And there in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we see Jesus' defeat of Satan. And by his defeating Satan there, Jesus demonstrates that he is morally and spiritually qualified to be Israel's great messianic king. And ultimately to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people. That's Matthew 4. We arrive now at the second confrontation. The second confrontation, and here in verses 28 to 34, Matthew is going to demonstrate for us Jesus' power and authority over Satan's realm. I've entitled the message for us this morning, Kingdoms in Conflict. Kingdoms in Conflict. And that's really what is going on here. Now, in order to to set this up, we need to take a little bit of time and look at some background. So we're going to start with some background. It's going to be a little longer than normal, but I think it's necessary in order to really understand what's going on. So let's take a look at some background, and we'll do that under three basic categories or headings. The first is a background. I'm calling it the God of this world, the God of this world. And this is kind of the big picture narrative that you need to have in mind when you approach this section of Matthew's gospel. And it goes like this. It takes us all the way back to the beginning. God created in the beginning, right, the heavens and the earth. On the sixth day of creation, God created Adam and Eve, the first humans, He brought them into creation, and he set them over creation, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And he set them up as his king and queen over the creation. That was their function. That was their role. Well, it didn't last long because Adam disobeyed God's direct commandment to him, and he took and he ate of the fruit of the tree of which he was forbidden to take from. When Adam took and ate, his disobedience brought sin into the the stream of humanity. It ruined both him and us, his distant offspring. It also brought the, the curse upon the creation itself, and we live in that state. That's why the world is broken. That's why the world is broken. But there was something else that happened at the time that's that's very important for us to understand. Not only did Adam bring sin into the world, not only did Adam uh, bring ruination into the creation, not only did he infect all of us with this deadly sin problem, but Adam forfeited his rightful rulership over the creation, and it was usurped by Satan. 
Satan then entered and usurped Adam's place and now rules, and this is important to know, he now rules the world system. John chapter 12, verse 31, he is called the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul calls Satan the God of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And so the present world system is now under the domain of Satan. He has usurped Adam's place. Now hang on to that thought. Then go with me to the book of Daniel. Don't, not literally, we don't have time. But just in your mind, go to the book of Daniel. There in the book of Daniel, there are a series of prophecies. It's really the same truth, and it's just prophesied in, in several different uh, visions. And in Daniel chapter 7, there is a most amazing vision, prophetic vision, that is recorded there. And it concerns four, that's it, four world empires. You know, it would be so much easier to preach with four fingers. Anyway, four four world empires. They are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these world empires are satanically driven and motivated. And in Daniel chapter 7, and specifically in verses 9 through 14, we are, we are invited, as it were, into the throne room of God himself. The curtain is peeled back for us, and we, we are able to peek into the throne room of God himself, the Ancient of Days. And there, the, the Ancient of Days, there's a, there is a vision given of him calling forth one to whom will be given an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that will supplant and smash these world systems that are in opposition to the God of Israel. And one comes forward called the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And the Son of Man, by the way, is Jesus' favorite self-designating title. As you read through the Gospels, he refers to himself most often as the Son of Man. That is this Son of Man given in Daniel's prophecy of Daniel 7. He receives from the ancient of days the authority for an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that will crush, that will defeat, that will smash these world empires in opposition to God. Now the scripture tells us that, that Jesus accomplishes this final victory during the seven year tribulation that is yet to come. That seven-year tribulation is, is, is uh, given to us prophetically in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. The structure of Revelation chapters 6 through 19 is a series of seals that are broken, and these seals are what uh, seal up the title deed to the earth. And as the seals are broken, the deed has begun to be unrolled. And when the final seventh seal is broken, the final cataclysmic judgment comes and the empire of Satan is finally destroyed, smashed. Messiah destroys the usurper's kingdom. And it's interesting because in, in Revelation 20, right, following Revelation 19, in Revelation 20, the first official act 
of the great messianic king is to seize Satan himself and bind him for a thousand years. Bind him for a thousand years. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 speaks of Jesus and his coming. And, and he says this, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So that's our sort of grand historical sweep that sets up our time here. Second thing we need to know before we enter into this. So I want to make some observations for you from the scriptures about demons and demon possession. As I said, there's a lot of misinformation that's floating around out there, and I think it's worth the time to take a few minutes and sort of establish some basic scriptural observations with regard to the realm of demons and demon possession. So here they are. They're just kind of big ideas. First, the Old Testament is largely silent about demon possession. Mark that down. The Old Testament is is silent, essentially silent, about demon possession. And that's noteworthy because when the New Testament opens up in the Gospels, what we note is a flurry of demonic activity. Jesus' three-and-a-half-year public ministry, as recorded for us in the Gospels, was a time of open and vicious conflict between Jesus and his disciples and Satan and his demons. And it is a very sharp contrast to the period of the old, covered by the Old Testament that has preceded it. The kingdom of heaven was at hand the apostle, or excuse me, the the prophet John the Baptist says. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. And because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, the house of the strong man, he must be bound in order to be plundered. So he comes and, and he plunders the strong man, Matthew 12, verse 29. Jesus refers to himself, Luke 11, verse 20, this way. He says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so there is a, there is a kingdom in conflict moment here in the period covered in the Gospels, unlike anything that had previously ever been seen. Now we move out of the Gospels and we move into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts covers about 30 years of the early history of the church. And the interesting thing to note is as the book of Acts proceeds in that 30-year period of time, the, uh, the occasions of demonic, demonic um, encounters dramatically is reduced. Demon possession goes down dramatically as we move through the history covered by the book of Acts. The next period of great demonic activity, according to the Scriptures, comes in the time of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 11. It is that time when demonic activity ramps up again. And so we are, we are living between the ages. We are living beyond the time of the, of, the, of the incredible conflict recorded in the Gospels, and we are living before the time of the great demonic activity at the end of the age. We are living in the in-between times. That's important to hang on to that. 
further observations from Scripture. The New Testament, when it speaks about demon possession, it's interesting to note that the demonic possession that it, that it speaks about occurs mainly in, in Gentile and pagan settings. Galilee, for example. Galilee, the north part of of the country of Israel, which had been repopulated by the Assyrians with idolaters, who later became Samaritans and so forth. So it's, it's Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a Gentile area. As we read through the Gospels, we note demonic activity in Phoenicia. We, we note demonic activity in, in uh, Decapolis. We note demonic activity in Ephesus, moving into the book of Acts. We do not read about demonic activity, demonic possession in Jerusalem, for example, as we read the Gospels. Now, further observations. According to the the biblical record, demonic possession was readily apparent. Readily apparent. It was readily apparent to everyone, even the unregenerate were able to, reg- to rightly discern when someone was possessed of a demon. We read this in the Gospels. The Gospels give us three main symptoms of, of demonic possession. When you boil the accounts down, basically are three main symptoms. So here they are. I'll give them to you. Number one, physical and or mental suffering and at times extreme or severe physical or mental suffering. Number two, the distinct presence of another personality. And that personality is displayed by speaking in, a, in another voice, and catch this, in an intelligent and coherent way. An intelligent and coherent way. Third, supernatural knowledge of spiritual matters. Those possessed of a demon had supernatural knowledge of spiritual matters. And probably the greatest illustration of that is the ability to identify Jesus for who he really was without having any prior introduction. We're going to see that in this morning's account. They know exactly who he is. One last observation from the New Testament. The epistles which are the letters written to the church so that the church might know how to to practice and live out its new faith in Messiah, contain no instructions regarding the detection of demons nor their casting out. There is no instruction anywhere in any of the epistles with regard to these things. When with regard to the demonic realm, we are told instead to resist Satan. James chapter 4, verse 7, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. We are to resist him by standing firm in the faith. Resist him by standing firm in the faith. And according to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, we are to be dressed in the defensive armor of God as we do that. So we're not to, we're not to detect demonic possession According, at least there's no, there's no instruction on how to go about doing that. There's no instruction on how to cast demons out. There is only when it comes to the, Satan and his realm with regard to the Christian, we are to resist him, we are to stand firm in the faith, we are to be dressed in the defensive armor of God, and that means basically to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ by consciously yielding ourselves to him and drawing upon his strength for victory. 
This is how you and I today are to interact with the demonic realm. Third. Third. I want to uh, just briefly speak to the, to the contrast between Matthew's account of this uh, encounter and Mark and Luke's account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same event. Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8 have a longer version of this event but the, but the great, and there are, there are a number of differences between the two accounts, but there's one big difference I want to call to your attention, and I'm going to do this now because that way I don't get 10 emails on uh, Sunday afternoon or Monday morning saying, how come there's two and one? That's the big difference. Matthew's account speaks of two demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke speak about only one. Why? Why? Why does Matthew speak of two and... Mark and Luke speak of only one. I think the answer is found in the purpose for which these accounts were recorded. Matthew's purpose is to focus on the power of Jesus over the demonic demonic realm as a sign that he is the great messianic king. And so because that is his purpose, he includes the encounter with the two men. There were two demon-possessed men. That's the facts. And Matthew records that. Mark and Luke have a, have a different perspective, a different purpose. And so it doesn't suit their purpose to record the fact that there were two. They instead focus on just one. Just one. They narrow their focus to the one demon-possessed man. The one, when Jesus says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, for there are many of us, Right? And it's interesting to note that, that Mark and Luke, who, who, yes, they want to display Jesus as the great messianic king, but they, beyond that, they want to speak about reaching out to the world with this gospel. And so they record the fact that, that Jesus, after he cast the demons out of this one man, and, and perhaps this man was the leader of the two, or maybe the more violent of the two, we don't really know, but, but they include the fact that, that after the demon has been cast out, this man is found sitting at Jesus' feet, and then wants to accompany Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Instead, go and tell the world what has happened, what God has done for you. And so Jesus commissions him as a missionary to the Gentile lands of the Decapolis, which lie on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So that's why I I believe there are, Matthew talks about the two, Mark and Luke talk about the one. All right, so we got all that? Beautiful, let's begin. Okay, let's begin. What we have here in verses 28 to 34 are three surprising turn of events. Three surprising turn of events which demonstrate Jesus' power and people's unbelief. Now, I built the, uh, the outline for this morning's message, and I don't normally do this, but, but I built the outline around something that is, that is not readily apparent in all English translations. I apologize for that, but but I think it is the real outline, and so I'm going with it. There's a little phrase in in the Greek text, and and it's just really, it's two words, and and the words are 
and behold. Now, if you have the, the ESV, they translate it for you. If you have the old New American Standard, they translate it for you. If you have the updated New American Standard, which I'm using, which is what our pew Bibles, they don't translate the first two, but they do translate the third one. I'll show you what I mean when I get there. This little phrase, and behold, appears in verse 29, verse 32, and verse 34. And it's, and it's used specifically. Because the word, uh, adieu is the Greek word, you don't need to know that, but it, but it has no exact English equivalent. It's, it's just an interesting little word, and, it, and it's variously translated, sometimes by the word lo, sometimes by the word behold, sometimes by the word see or look. And if we were to, we were to translate this as sort of in the vernacular, we would say, check it out. Check it out. And it's... And it's has a purpose, and and its purpose is to enliven the narrative, to provide movement to the narrative, to kind of push the narrative along by introducing something that is new and something that is extraordinary, something unexpected, something out of the ordinary. And it calls the reader or the listener to stop, to consider, to, to contemplate what's going on. Instead of blowing right through to stop and think, whoa, did you get that? Check that out. That is, that is amazing. That is unexpected. That is, a, that is a turn of events that I would not have foreseen. And it's used three times in this section. And it highlights the, the unexpected nature of the events surrounding Jesus' second encounter with the demon world. All right, I'm going to read the text for you. Let me read it. And I am reading it out of the New American Standard, the update, verse, the 95 edition. But I'm going, to, I'm going to insert in my reading the, you know, the little word to do, the behold, into the text so you know what I'm talking about. If you've got the English Standard Version, it's already there for you. So here we go, verse 28. When he, that is Jesus, came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine. And check it out! The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. This is a really surprising account. Everything is exactly the opposite of what one might first expect. So here's my outline for you. First, I'm, I'm calling it demonic distress. Okay? Demonic distress. So you, you, you get it. 
They come into the country, verse 28, of the Gadarenes. This uh, territory is uh, likely named for the city of Gadara, which was the capital of that district, located a few miles inland from the Sea of Galilee on the eastern shore. Now, the distance from Capernaum, where, the, where, the people, where Jesus and the disciples set out from by boat, to, to, um, to this territory of the Gadarenes, is about six miles across the lake. Now, as we, as we learned last week, this is a night voyage, right? They, they set out at evening time across the lake, and they encountered this incredible storm, which Jesus completely stilled. They now have finished their night journey, and they're arriving on the, on the eastern shore in the territory of the Gadarenes. Now, it's, it's probably very early in the morning, very early in the morning. And they come ashore, and they, and they climb out of their boat, and, and immediately they are set upon by two demon-possessed men. That requires us to stop for a minute and talk about demon possession. The New Testament, when it speaks about demon possession in its most common form, 16 times, it it speaks of one having a demon, one having a demon or having an unclean spirit. That's the most common usage. The second most common usage is the one that is used here, demon possessed. It's used 13 times. Now, the New Testament speaks about demon. The, the role of demons, and it says that demons can influence people towards involvement in false doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.1. Demons can, can influence people towards attitudes of jealousy and divisiveness and, and pride, according to James 3.13-16. But those who manifest these particular characteristics are not demon-possessed. Demon possession is a very unique thing. I have a quote for you here. Demon possession refers to the invasion of a victim's body by a demon or demons in which the demon exercises living and sovereign control over the victim, which the victim cannot successfully resist. Demon possessed. They, Jesus and his disciples, encounter here two men who are demon-possessed. Now, when we take the time to look at at Mark's and Luke's accounts here, it sort of combines it with Matthew's. It it fills in for us some of, of what these two men were like, and they were frightening. They were frightening. They lived among the caves which served as tombs where the dead were buried. They were violent. Matthew says they were exceedingly violent. They were strong. Mark records the fact that, that the, the locals tried to bind them with chains and shackles, and yet they managed to somehow smash their way out of them, so they could not even be bound. They were masochistic. And that is that they were self-mutilating. Again, Mark and Luke talk about them cutting themselves with rocks and things. And they say that they they went around without clothes. Now, the the reason they went around without clothes is because clothing is a protection from the elements. And so the demons that that possessed them caused them to shed their clothes, not to display nakedness, but in order to to, uh, afflict them with physical suffering. 
So they were cutting themselves. They were going about naked and being exposed to the harshness of the climate. They were crazed. And that is that they preferred to live among the dead than the living. Again, Mark tells us that night and day they were, they were screaming out among the tombs and in the mountains. And they were dangerous. They were dangerous. Take a look at the end of verse 28 here in Matthew 8. It says, no one could pass by that way. If you were to come by this path where these demon-possessed men were, they would set upon you and likely kill you. They were violent, dangerous. I'm sure they presented a terrifying sight. Terrifying sight. And I also have no doubt that they approached the boat in order to attack it. Jesus and his disciples land in the wee hours of the morning. They get out of the boat onto the shore, and out come these two ferocious-looking men. Wild-eyed, crazed, screaming, and set upon them. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? This is an unexpected turn of events. Rather than Jesus and the disciples being under threat and being terrified, it is the demons that feel under threat. It is the demons who are terrified. This is the complete role reversal. The arrival of Jesus, it it unnerves them, and they they cry out in fear. It's interesting to me in verse 27, the end of the miracle there on the seas, right? The men were amazed at his disciples, and they said, what kind of man is this? The demons provide the answer. Verse 29, what business do we have with each other? Son of God. Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons, I probably should have said this earlier, demons are are fallen angels, right? You know that. Fallen angels. Way back in, in the beginning, Satan, who was a chief angel, rebelled against God. And, and with him enlisted other angels in his rebellion. And they were, they were judged by God and, and, and became what we call demons. And they will ultimately be, be forever tormented in the lake of fire, according to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. The lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, when the, when the angels fell in the great rebellion, some of them were confined to a place called the abyss. Luke chapter 8, verse 31 introduces the concept of the abyss. The abyss is a prison in which some of the rebellious angels in the original uprising have been confined. Revelation 9 tells us that during the tribulation that some of them will be released from the abyss in order to torment the world. 
But for now, they remain confined there in the abyss. Eventually, when, when Messiah establishes his kingdom, his first official act is for Satan to be bound and to be thrown into where? The abyss, where he's bound for a thousand years. So here's what's, what's going on here. The arrival of Jesus here on the, on the eastern shore in that early morning, it causes these demons to fear that somehow the timetable has changed. Somehow the timetable has changed and that they're going to be consigned to the abyss early. Have you, have you come here to torment us before the time, before the season for our final punishment? They're in distress. They're They're terrified. They realize Jesus is going to cast them out. And so they, they plead with him now, looking for some place to go. Interesting here, verse 30, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Mark's account says one of the, one of the demonic possessed man, Jesus says, what is your name? He's, he's addressing the demon. And the demon says, legion, for we are many. Mark also tells us that, the, that this uh, herd of pigs, a total 2,000. 2,000 pigs. And they're, they're beseeching Jesus, verse 31, saying, if you're going to cast us out, then send us into the herd of swine. Send us into the herd of swine. If, you, if you're going to cast us out, and it's obvious that you are, then, then at least let us go into this, this herd of pigs. Why? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know why Jesus complied with it either. But he does. And that takes us to the second amazing turn of events, and I'm calling this a, a suicidal stampede. We have demonic distress. We now have a suicidal stampede. Verse 32, and he said to them, go. Go, just one word, go. With that power, that authority of the great messianic king, the, 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 the son of man, the one who has received from the ancient of days, charted of the kingdom. He says, go. And they go. He sends them out of the men. He banishes them. And he allows them to, to possess these pigs. Now the Greek here is clear. Not, Jesus didn't send them out of the men and into the pigs. Jesus sent them out of the men and allowed them to possess the pigs. Permissive imperative, you Greek fans. And then, you know what? The most crazy thing happens. The, the, the wildness of these men goes away. Mark tells us, when, you know, when the townspeople come back at the end of it, they find them in his right mind sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed. The craziness, the wildness, the, the self-destructive behavior of the two men, it disappears. And check it out. Behold! The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. <laughs> they drowned themselves. 2,000 pigs jumped off a cliff. 
All of that evil went from those men into those animals and they committed suicide. Now we don't know whether the demons moved them to do that or whether the pigs just in, in fear, of, in terror of what had happened just sort of blindly rushed off the cliff. We don't know. It doesn't say. We do know this, the demons didn't stay in the pigs long, right? <laughs> Crazy. That's unexpected. By the way, it's also incredible evidence that, the, that Jesus did send out those demons, right? And that's exactly what the herdsmen observed, verse 33. The herdsmen ran away. And they went into the city and they reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. I mean, these swine herders, they witnessed the whole thing. And they took off. <laughs> they, went in, they went into the village to, to tell people, you won't believe what just happened. Why? I'm not sure. I mean, maybe they went to tell everybody so that they didn't get blamed for the 2,000 pigs that killed themselves. Right? Hey, your job is to watch the pigs. Yeah, I got it. Right? And then in the morning, where's the pigs? Well, you know, lost them. <laughs> so there may be some self-preservation involved in that. I don't know. I suspect that it had a lot to do with what they saw. It was so out of the ordinary, so unexpected, so, so over the top. A display of power. Remember, these are the two demon-possessed men that, that the townspeople have no ability to control. They, when they, you know, chained them up, they smash their chains and they break their shackles and, and they escape and they, and they set upon travelers and, and they are absolutely fearsome. Now they're just kind of sitting there, docile, clothed, in their right minds. And the pigs, they all kill themselves. Takes us to our third unexpected turn of events. We have demonic distress. We have suicidal stampede. Third, we have a heartless hostility. A heartless hostility. Another amazing turn of events here. Behold, check it out. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. I bet they did. The whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him, they begged him to leave their region. They begged him to leave. Mark and Luke tell us when the time they get there, right, the the demon-possessed men, they're, they're sitting there, they're fully clothed, they're in their right mind, they're listening to Jesus. One of them wants to follow him, go with him. And the result of that scene is exactly the opposite of what you would expect. Again, Mark and Luke, they fill in a little detail for us. The townspeople are frightened by all of this. They're frightened by it all. They beg Jesus to, to leave. How strange, don't you think? How very strange to, re- to respond in this way. I mean, after this amazing display of power, why not get you sick and bring them and have him heal them? 
Why not, why not yourself come to Him and, and ask Him to heal your soul? Why not rejoice that these two formerly demon-possessed men are now healed? There's none of that. There's no rejoicing. There, there is no coming to Jesus and, and pleading with Him on, on, on your behalf to, to be merciful to you, to do a miracle for you, to, to carry your sick. Or None of that. It's like we cannot stand to be in your presence. Leave. Please. Leave. Very strange. One writer says, evidently the only thing they could think about was their economic loss. Perhaps that's so. D.A. Carson, the commentator, says they preferred pigs to people, swine to the Savior. We don't exactly know. It's just a very strange response, very unexpected response. They have clearly seen the power of God. The king of Israel has visited their land in an absolutely uh, uh, unimpeachable demonstration of kingdom power. And yet they want no part of it. None. Get out of here. Go away. Leave us alone. Sometimes people say, boy, wouldn't it be great if Jesus were here today, huh? Man, wouldn't that be something if he were just like, you know, walk through those doors? I think it'd be terrifying. I think it'd be terrifying. If he were to walk in here today, minister among us, are we so sure we would like that, huh? I mean, he has a, he has a way of sort of disturbing people's plans, don't you think? You know? Reveals people's unbelief. Just His presence. Jesus is clearly the Messianic King. Matthew wants you to know that. That's the big idea of this passage. No question about it. Are there other applications we can can sort of draw out of this? I think there are. I think think this response of the townspeople is, is sort of interesting to think about. I mean, certainly, I think you can principalize it this way, that, that human value surpasses material value. I mean, I don't know why the pigs, you know, the demons into the pigs and the pigs kill themselves. I don't know. But certainly, Jesus thought these two men were of more value than a herd of pigs. Kind of hard to believe he was surprised by it. People worth more than Property? Hmm? People more important than projects? There's a principle. Or how about this? Jesus came to set the captives free. Hmm? Jesus came to set the the captives free. He set the captives free here in, in a most amazing way. 
So what about you? You find yourself this morning trapped in sin. Bound in darkness. Not that you're demon-possessed. But that sin seems to have you by the throat. It's having its way with you. Jesus has the power to set you free. Amen? Has the power to set you free? He wants to set you free. If you will but humble your heart and come to Him, He will save your soul. He will deliver you from sin. He is the great messianic king. My friends, will you come today? Will you come today? Not tomorrow. Not next week. If the Spirit of God is is moving in your heart today, you know inside is like this voice that's speaking to you saying, I've got to deal with this. You should deal with this. Deal with this. Then today's your day. Come. As we close here, the people will be up and milling around. Just come on down front here. I want to talk to you. I'd like to open the Word of God with you and, and show you specifically how the great Messianic King will deliver your soul. Will you come? How about you? Will you come? Let's pray. Our Father, we are again brought face to face with the power of Christ. The very Son of God. The great Messianic King. The one who has all rule and authority, all dominion. And the one who willingly humbled himself to die on a cross as a substitute for his people. For those who would come by faith and receive this gift that Jesus offers. Our Father, I pray that this morning that you would bring forward that one who's in turmoil even right now. Unsure. Wanting to come and be made right with God and yet at the same time afraid. Lord, may you draw him. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here who who are feeling the effect of sin and, and it feels like it's having its way with them. Even now, they're, they're struggling. Jesus sets them free. May they find today in the, in the gospel message the hope they need to gain victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, beloved. Have a great day.